All three of today's lessons are noteworthy for bringing to the foreground words and actions that echo or mirror other stories and pronouncements in scripture. They are all episodes that point to what is to come in the great arc of our faith. In the section we heard from 2 Kings, Elijah crosses the Jordan into holy ground and is taken away in a winged, fiery chariot. And his mantle is transferred, literally and figuratively, to Elisha. The line of the prophets moves forward. This transfer involves, as do so many significant moments in scripture, a crossing of a body of water. We're reminded of the escape of the Jews from slavery in Egypt, of Jesus walking across the water to reach and to teach his disciples a lesson about trust. And we recall that crossing the Jordan is the major moment of the final return of the Israelites into their promised land. In the gospel today, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, both geographical city, both the geographical city and the heavenly one. He dwells between earth and heaven, and he's impatient that anyone with anyone who would impede him. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he says, until, he implies, he reaches Jerusalem where he will lie in the tomb. He knows where he is going and why he is going there and has no patience or any hindrance to his journey. You cannot look back, he tells a would-be follower. And we know that Jesus does not look back as he makes his inevitable journey toward his fate. Paul, too, in today's epistle is emphatic and abrupt. He has learned that those he once taught the truth have taken on some new teaching. Paul is angry and impatient with the one-time followers. He writes to the Galatians that he's heard that they're listening to others who claim to know a different gospel. So Paul, exasperated, scolds them and recounts the message that he'd already brought to them, telling them, you're making a simple, wonderful, all-embracing truth into something complicated and exclusive. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, no longer slave nor free, no longer male nor female. All are to be saved by the good news of Jesus the Christ. And he tells them the message is simple. You must love your neighbor as yourself. So we're reminded in all of today's lessons of some of the major themes of the Christian year. The great prophets of the past are opening the way for our last great prophet, the Christ. They have moved the waters and entered the promised land to make ready for our salvation. The disciples, including Paul, are carrying on the good news and beginning to understand that the good news is available to all people. And Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, where he will complete his work for our salvation. And it's with these truths in mind that I offer the rest of this morning's remarks. I know that we don't always in our church discuss so-called current events, from the pulpit, and by our church I mean the Episcopal Church and also St. Luke's Los Gatos, 
But this week, a number of things happened in the world, near and far, that caused me to realize that what we say we believe here should influence us seven days a week. If our faith has nothing to say about events that impact our lives, then we are isolating ourselves and isolating our faith from the everyday realities of living in the world. So I want to offer a few ideas that I urge you to think about in terms not just of your politics, nor your studies, nor what you may feel in your gut, but to place them beside the teachings of our church, especially the teachings of Christ and his disciples through the ages. Anglicans believe that there are three bases on which our theology rests, scripture, tradition, and reason, including experience of living in the world. And when we look at the events that fill the TV, the newspapers, the electronic media this past week, what do our three sources of theology teach us? If we look at the serious pronouncements made by the U.S. Supreme Court, we can get a somewhat mixed message from our theology. For after all, scripture in some places supports the idea of slavery and supports the inferiority of women, offers many pictures of authority, which is hierarchical and absolute. Yet as we make our way into the teachings of Jesus and their reinforcement by those who write of the early decades of the of the church, we, we see the beginnings of a great shift in the power structure. The ideas of the absolute power of a ruler are modified and then reduced to consultation and consensus. When Judas Iscariot is to be replaced to maintain the group of 12 special disciples, a, t- a kind of vote is taken to select Matthias. Paul writes that rich and poor, male and female, slave and master, are categories that are to be eliminated and forgotten. Tradition modified scripture. And reason may suggest that it makes sense for the states to decide how we are to cast lots to vote. And it does. If each political entity has in mind the ideas of equality and benign trust, Was the Supreme Court right in eliminating much of the Voting Rights Act? If the basic premise reiterated by Paul today, you must love your neighbor as yourself, is followed, no one need worry about voting. Does our world follow the teachings that Jesus and his followers proclaimed? Are we color and status and gender blind? Or are we still in a world where power is at the top among the few? And what does our reason tell us? Our experience. I leave that to your judgment. Another significant social question addressed by the court this week and by the news media and by millions of households and by politicians all along the political spectrum was our lay lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Americans, full citizens? And if so, should laws related to their lives be the same as for all other relationships under the U.S. law? For the most part, the court said, albeit by a scant majority of five to four, yes, they should. 
Those whose lives were directly affected rejoiced for this act of fairness. Many of those who believe that LGBT citizens have chosen to live in sin were appalled and will continue to be so. But within this decision, albeit based only on law, not on religion, we seem to see at work a faint glimmer of love your neighbor as yourself. That is, treat others and let the law treat others with fairness, not suspicion. Should this text prevail, or are the prohibitions set out in Leviticus to be followed? And what have reason and experience taught us? Two other actions by different branches of government also should send us to our Christian teachings for illumination. I'm speaking of the immigration bill that passed in the U.S. Senate, offering hopeful entry to millions who wish to be part of the American dream. Is this a way for our country to love our neighbors? Is this a way for us to honor and care for the strangers, as we are repeatedly admonished to do? Or is this an invasion against which the promised land and people must protect themselves? Are we willing to share power? Finally, the U.S. president outlined a plan for conserving and protecting our fragile planet. This is the planet that God created and pronounced good. What can we do to keep it good? Or is this the earth that God gave humans dominion over? How are we doing? Can we ever, in good faith, separate our faith from the world outside? And so you don't think I'm even a bit heretical. I think I'll quote here from our bishop, Mary Gray Reeves, who wrote to the diocese on Friday, As Jesus has worked in our hearts and changed them, may we so hold out the gospel of love and freedom to all people, sharing the joys and the burdens of what it requires to be truly free. And then our... Presiding Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey offered this opinion. The Episcopal Church has an ancient tradition of attempting to hold divergent views together for the sake of a deeper truth. All are beloved of God, and the flourishing of each is what we believe God intended from the beginning of creation. May we help to build a beloved community in which each and every person is treated with dignity, knowing that each and every one reflects an image of God. And also this week, I suffered a personal loss. One of my dearest longtime friends died of cancer. She was in her 60s. She was in no way religious. She did not acknowledge any of the beliefs that we here try to espouse. Yet she was a generous, bright, loving person, a brilliant writer, and a fine teacher, beloved by dozens of people, including her seven grandchildren. A memorial service in her honor will be held at Stanford Memorial Church. I am to be the MC but not in a role that particularly reflects my 
role as a priest. This is a strange and difficult position. Yet today, I believe that God never abandons anyone. The love of God and of all those who knew my friend have great power. I do not fear for her. I do not believe for a minute that she is damned nor condemned, but destined for the realm of the next dimension, just as we all are. There are many things I have not shared with you, Jesus told his disciples, including us, because you're not ready yet. I believe that some of that knowledge awaits for us all. After the nine o'clock service, someone told me this anecdote, which seemed appropriate. Maybe you know the occasional interviews on Actors Workshop where famous actors and actresses and directors are interviewed. The final question that's asked of each of these celebrities is, when you get to heaven and meet St. Peter, what do you hope he says to you? And Meryl Streep said, I hope he says, Everybody in. And so I ask you to pray for my friend Anne. Not because she believed in God, but because God believes in her. And God believes in you. I ask you to carry the good news out of here into where whatever part of the world you inhabit seven days a week. It will give you the strength to be confident, loving presence, no matter what the world offers you. So, go in peace to love and serve. <laughs>